0: Okay. Yes. <laughs> the way uh, this forty-three comes off is, like Jacob acts like he does, has never heard anything about this before. When they came back with, without uh, Simeon, and uh, and all and knew that they wanted Benjamin to come. You know, it's like he just put it out of his mind. And uh, I was wondering if his aging might have had something to do with that. If he was really not was not thinking real right when. uh, Well, of course, it was not a pleasant thought to him. So it would be easy to to dismiss it, to shut it, shut it out of your memory. But he was at this point about 130 years old. He lived to be 147, 17 years in Egypt. And so I think it's the, the thought of it. It's not a happy thought that it, it would be easy to dismiss it and say, no, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to do that. I don't want to pursue it. Yes. Uh, I don't know if it's old age. I think it's more the distressing thought of sending his youngest son. I think that is the problem. Yes, not in chapter 43, but you touched on it in chapter 46, where Joseph sells the uh, beginning from verse uh, 14. you know the people spend all their money, then they give their life you know, they give their poor food, they give their livestock to Pharaoh and then they basically become slaves. And Joseph seems to be the mastermind. well he is a mastermind of all of that. Um, Now, we know enough about Joseph and his righteousness to know that he means well. Yes. He he means it benevolently. It almost seems... In light of what's going on today, it it seems ominous. You know? (laughs) It it seems... What's your feeling on that, Pastor Ishwar? Was it wise to do that? Or is it... Like, just get everything into the hands of the government? Like, Pharaoh... I, I, I wonder if... Because later on in Moses' time, the Pharaoh is this absolute monarch. And maybe, possibly, this was a stepping stone toward that. Where Pharaoh now owns all the people. Yes, okay. In Genesis 47, 47, 13 to 26. I'm sorry, 47. 47, when Joseph buys them. Well, they... So, there are distinctions, clear distinctions we must make on slavery. And so, on the one hand, we have to acknowledge that in the Old Testament and New Testament, there is no single verse that condemns the practice or institution of slavery, if it is practiced properly just like the bible nowhere condemns government or all forms of government simply because governmental officials become corrupt they the bible nowhere condemns marriage even though marriage becomes corrupt corrupted or families because families become corrupted or money because money becomes corrupted correct the Bible does not make a blanket, universal, absolute statement against any of these examples. And that, is, and that includes slavery. It does not do so. We have to acknowledge that. Not with the, the propaganda and the misunderstanding and distortion of history and U.S. history. Not with that lens. So it does not condemn slavery. Joseph practiced it in Genesis 47. God actually actually also practiced it in Exodus 21, where the slave, the Hebrew slave who loves his master and has served him already, when he wants to permanently serve him, he makes an arrangement with his master to permanently serve him. It doesn't say there should be no institution of slavery, even for a year or six years or seven years or permanently. It doesn't say any of that. It regulates it. It permits it as a good thing. Because he says, if his master says, Exodus 21, five, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out as a free man. What if his conditions are very good in that environment? Because of of that, so it is permitted. Even in the New Testament, the Book of Philemon does not mitigate; it does not uh, abolish; it does not do anything to slavery. It encourages a master to receive lovingly his runaway slave, right. but it doesn't. Who is now a Christian? Right. Both are Christians to receive the slave back without uh, being vengeful, mistreating him, or anything like that. To lovingly receive him back, because now you have a faithful brother who, who will be a faithful slave to you. Right. So Philemon, treat him well. That's the encouragement. But the encouragement in Philemon, the book of Philemon is not to abolish slavery. Having, okay, so that is in terms of the actual practice of it in society. Both Testaments do not condemn it. Both Testaments regulate it, just like both Testaments regulate government, what government can and cannot do, regulate marriages, what marriages can and cannot do. Correct? Go, and even with money, even with alcohol, as we mentioned in Genesis 43, it regulates what is the proper use and what's the improper use. The Bible teaches us what the boundaries are. Um, this is true in practical daily life. But also, what about our relationship to the Lord? Doesn't Romans 6 compare our relationship to the Lord in terms of slavery as something good? Because like Exodus 21, Romans 6 is describing that we are now under a new master, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And because of that, he says, 617. Well, well, we'll start in 615. 615. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Slaves of righteousness. And what is Christ? What is one name He is called? What is He to us? Master. Master. Our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude 4. He's our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And if... Everything about slavery is disgusting and loathsome and sinful, corrupt. If it is that, then why in the world is God using that analogy to describe our relationship to Him? It's not that. But the assumption, because of our educational system, the teaching of history, generally, and U.S. history specifically, has corrupted our minds into thinking that way. It's not. And actually... The ideology has sought not only to overturn civil society generally, but specifically in the family. What do they also encourage? The people who promote a distortion of the institution of slavery. They promote the wives subverting their husbands. They subvert children subverting their parents. And they try to legalize it all. Correct? So that's all wrong. Now, part of your question was the excessive nature of control and regulation of people. Now, in the book of Genesis, that was an exceptional occasion. There was a famine, and everybody was desperate, and the the best way to make uh, use of their circumstance to survive was to do what they did. That was exceptional. But that doesn't happen all the time everywhere. And so if they promote that the government should <clears throat> regulate minutia of every citizen, the minutia of every citizen, every detail of every citizen from the time you wake up to the time you sleep, and even while you sleep, uh, what, what you can or can't have turned on in your house, uh, heat cold air, whatever, whatever they try to do to regulate every aspect of our life, that has nothing to do with genuine concern for the people. Though they advertise it that way, they preach it that way, that we want everybody to have a high level of life and prosperity in in life, good health and lots of wealth. They promote it that way, but actually, actually, they don't believe that those who know the ideology and um, promote it the most, they are evil people, evildoers, controlled by the devil, who actually want to subjugate people to destroy them. They want deliberate death and mass misery by means of deceit. They keep lying to the people, this is what we'll do for you, this is what we'll do for you, and all the while year after year, decade after decade, century after century, it makes their situation worse and worse. It doesn't improve it. So they are liars who don't have a genuine interest in the people. They actually want to kill them. They want genocide. Whether it happens quickly or slowly, they believe in genocide. But the Bible also regulates that. When too many Taxes are raised, too much in taxes are raised, and becomes a burden to the people. The Bible warns against that. Nehemiah, the governor, the righteous governor, in Nehemiah chapter 5, 14, 5, 14 when he returned to Judea and he saw what the previous governors did to exploit the people, he was disgusted. He rebuked. The, the people who were doing it, and he sought to do the opposite. Nehemiah 5 and, well, the whole chapter is instructive on this. Verse 1 Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers, for there were those who said, We are sons and our daughters are many, therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. And there were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses, that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards, and now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet, behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others." Nehemiah is angry about this. And then in verse 7, verse 7, I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You are exacting usury, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. And what was their problem? They did not walk in the fear of our God. Verse 9, right. they did not walk. So he curses them. Verse 13, I also shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise or oath. Um, Verse 14. Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I, nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. And I also applied myself to work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, then he describes what he did do to provide for his officials. And in verse 19, Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. But he did not even take the governor's food allowance. He made provisions for himself and the others. So he was trying to alleviate the burden on the people, not exacerbate the burden. Okay? And it included slavery. Right? Right? Um, how much should the government take? Should they take 20%? <clears throat> yeah, economists, they say, for a balanced uh, free market capitalistic ec- economist, will even say it's okay for them to take about 17 to 20% of our income in taxes. Um, but then the communists, they want to take 90%. So is 20% okay or 90% okay or somewhere between? or less. This passage in 1 Samuel 8. 1 Samuel 8. When the regulations are presented for their first king. First king. For their first king, look at what he says. First kings chapter 8 verse 10. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king, and he said, This will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest, and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants." And he will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male slaves and your female slaves and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. He regulates that they should take in terms of two examples, verse 15 and 17. 15 and 17. He says, a tenth of your seed and your vineyards. In 17, a tenth of your flocks. Well, that's the closest we come to a percentage and to regulate it. Not more than a tenth, not less than a tenth. And if we gave only a tenth to the government, there would be a whole lot more of self-sufficiency and hard work. And people would take care of themselves and their families a lot better than they do. The, the government's purpose is not to regulate every aspect of life, nor to be a benevolence fund. The, the government, they are not the... Office of Benevolence, and they don't, they should not be controlling all the funds to help the poor. Who should help the poor? No. Family Family first, help, help the church, then the church. Yes. Their own families should learn to take care of each other among immediate family and relatives. They should help each other and hold each other accountable to care for one another, and then the church. If there is genuine need, then the church helps with the genuine need. But the family and the church should both be holding these individuals accountable for their actions and discern whether there is a genuine need or not. And you might say, how do we know that? 1 Timothy 5, 1 to 16. 1 Timothy 5, 1 to 16. The book of Ruth. Is the book of Ruth not an example of that? Ruth was a Moabitess, right? She was a pagan, not by that point in the book of Ruth, but she was. And she was a widow. In our culture, immediately, she's a foreigner, she's a woman, and a widow. Okay? What do you want? We'll give it to you. Or go go to the local office of the government and the government will give you this and that, there's a list of ten benefits that you deserve. Even though you are a foreigner, a woman, and a widow. uh, Everything at your fingertips. But that's not what happened in the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, the righteous expected the widow to work. She was a young widow, like 1 Timothy 5 says, the young widows should be working and remarrying not receiving money from the church. Also in Leviticus Leviticus teaches us in Leviticus 19 Leviticus 19:9 19, 9 and 10. Now when you reap the harvest of your land you shall not reap to the very corners of your field neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest nor shall you glean your vineyard nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard you shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. The needy and the stranger are supposed to glean. That means they have to work. Yep. It doesn't say that the needy and the stranger, like Ruth was a stranger, a foreigner, coming to live in Israel, that all they need to do is go to the local uh, office of the government for their welfare payments. It doesn't teach that. It teaches them to work. If they are there legally, they are to work, glean in the field. No automatic payments while they sit down at home with their big screen TV and uh, Obama phones. But that's how the government gets control of them, making them dependent. Yeah. Yes. And they just yeah. keep power. Yes, that's how, yeah. they, that's how they keep power. But it's not just keeping power and making them dependent, but it's destroying them. Yeah. Like I said... It's not just merely about power, control, um, wanting to be in office and be remembered in history. It's not just those things. It is those things. But it is more devious. It's more malicious. It's more murderous than that. They actually love it when more people die. They want more people to die. They literally want more people to die. They don't care about our health and our wealth. Only to the extent that while they're um, committing genocide, they can take our money for their own benefit. In that sense, they care about their own wealth, but they don't care about wealth for everybody. Only our wealth, so that we could be in more misery and die. Whether intentionally or by circumstances, because of depression or whatever, we, we kill ourselves in suicide. Okay, one or two last comments because our time is up. So, it also seemed like when we talked about when Joseph was a uh, prophet before Pharaoh, he provided, you know, he gave the plan of exacting a fifth. I think of the grain of the people. You know, the first thought was like, well, that seems like excessive <laughs> taxation. But, but again, this is a, this is a different example because he is a prophet and was proven to be a prophet. So you know, like, there's no comparison to what's happening today. Fauci is no prophet, right? <laughs> He's proven to be a false prophet. False prophet. Yeah. And so for Joseph was proven to be a true prophet of God. And that's what, does that, is that what the difference is? Does yeah, that, that, that's another difference. That Joseph was a prophet. He correctly predicted seven years of plenty. Mm-hmm. And so far, he had been predicting the famine and it was happening as he predicted. Yeah. And everything, and he was a godly man. He, didn't, he did not have a history of being a false prophet like Filthy Fauci. He is, and also in, the, in terms of um, uh, with, with the modern false prophets, they say things again and again, but it doesn't turn out the way they say it. The actual evidence does not turn out to be the way that they are saying it. But we're dealing with, in Joseph's case, an honest man and a true prophet of God, not a dishonest man who, has, who should have no estimation in our eyes. Should, should we also just assume that Pharaoh's uh, taking this as a tax? Could he not be uh, relieving the burden of the abundance because abundance drives the price down? And he could be Purchasing, giving them a fair market value for their grain, which would be exceedingly low because of the abundance. Mm-hmm. And know. storing it up and, and, and uh, uh, using that. To keep it stable. During yeah. the years of To keep it, mm-hmm. yeah, to keep it stable so that there isn't uh, a rush on things and then exploitation or consumption and it's going to harm everybody. Right. Okay, one more. Well, like you said earlier, Pastor, uh, the people said to Joseph, You've saved our lives. And, yeah. and they meant it. And it was true. Probably without Joseph, they would have starved too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. This was an unusual circumstance. Yes. Okay, thank you.